Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. I think it's critical that more work is done in the prevention space. We shouldn't need a postvention service if we were doing prevention well enough. The numbers don't appear to me to be decreasing in our young people's suicides. In 2020, our service recorded 46 suicides in the 25 and under age group. This year so far, we already have 27. Community and culture stemming the rates of First Nations youth suicide and self-harm and a fresh approach to the provision of culturally appropriate early childhood education and care. Moving to investigations is new for us and we just think that the department is too quick to remove and too slow to refer families to supports. And I believe if we have the capacity to investigate, I believe a lot more families will get help earlier. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. And joining me to discuss the hot issues of the past week are Indigenous Affairs Editor with Guardian Australia, Lorena Allen, and the Chair of the Bangara Dance Theatre, Philippa McDermott. Hearings into an inquest into the 2019 death in custody of 20-year-old Bailey Mackinder were held in New South Wales this week. Mr Mackinder was on remand in the Central Coast Carry-On Correctional Centre when he was taken to Gosford Hospital, where he managed to jump a concrete wall before falling 10 metres. The inquest heard this week that his death was avoidable. Lorena, you follow these cases closely. What have been your observations about this case and this inquest? Well, firstly, it's becoming all too familiar that families congregate at the coroner's court. There's a poster of their loved one. They roll out the flag. People hold vigils and smoking ceremonies. This seems to happen so frequently now that you can kind of set your watch by this process. The family, in in the case of Bailey's death, his parents, my heart goes out to them because they're hearing in this week all of his cries for help, literally his cries for help while he was buzzing up and asking for help from the guards in the lead up to his death. Again, completely true to the pattern that we see with deaths in custody, that people are calling for help or it's been noted within the system that they need help and that they are not getting the help they need, which eventually leads to their death. Philippa, one of the things that's really noticeable is that we see patterns of deaths in custody. As Lorena says, there are patterns. And these mirror the ones that we saw in the actual Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody in lots of ways. From your perspective as somebody who's also really watched this space carefully, 30 years on from the Royal Commission, what has changed? Well, unfortunately, I probably would say not a lot. I think there's a recent focus on it which has come about because of Black Lives Matter, I'd say, and what's been happening overseas. But for the intervening 25 years, not a lot has changed. And it's frustratingly disappointing that, you know, those recommendations haven't been implemented. It's not rocket science. There was a big push when the Royal Commission came down and all governments were accountable and had to report back every year on what they were doing about implementing those recommendations. That went on for maybe five years. So there was movement and there was change. But that, I think, over successive governments haven't followed that up. And that could be one way that 
we could get the ball rolling again. I mean, governments and agencies reporting on what they're doing about implementing the recommendations. It's not that hard. And you make a really good point because that isn't being monitored from that level. There isn't kind of coordinated oversight of this issue. And it does bring me to you, Lorena. One of the things you've done at Guardian Australia is found a database on black deaths in custody. Can you tell us about what led you to do that, why it was necessary? It started with my colleague, Keller Walquist, who was covering the inquest into the death of Miss Dew in Western Australia. And she wanted to know exactly how many Aboriginal people had died in custody since the Royal Commission. And no one had the answer. So she rang every jurisdiction because she's an incredibly precise and thorough person and no one had a number. And she started thinking, well, well, who's tracking this? Turns out nobody was tracking it. So we decided we should do it. And what that entailed was from 2008 to 2018, our original publication date, we tracked down every known Indigenous death in custody and collected a number of data points about those people. And then for statistical comparison, we also tracked every single death in custody for five years of that period to get a kind of good statistical comparison. In 2018, when we published, we published the database which lists people where families have given us permission, their names. It explains who they are and how they passed away, the status of their inquest, whether there were recommendations made, whether people had pre-existing mental and physical illnesses when they were taken into custody, what they were taken into custody for, and their status as a prisoner, whether they received all the care that they required, whether the system provided the care that they needed. So then we looked at those data points and what they said to us over that 10-year period were the trends. One of the crucial things we found was that more than half of all Aboriginal people who died in custody were on remand, which means they had not been convicted of any crime. So in the case of Vandi Tanya Day, who was picked up off a train for falling asleep on a train, okay, and she was put in the police watch house under an archaic law, the public drunkenness law in Victoria, which ironically was recommended by the Royal Commission be abolished 30 years ago. So those are the sorts of stories we told in the database. And we looked at what they were showing in terms of those broader patterns, as I just said. We kept tracking those for the every year since we have released an update of the database. And, and it was particularly important this year because we've had five deaths in custody since the beginning of the year, which is a huge number. And what's been interesting, we've watched the conversation about deaths in custody become more mainstream over those few years that we've been publishing. And I also need to say that we've worked quite closely with a number of families who've lost loved ones in custody, like the Dungay family, like Aunty Tanya Day's daughters. So with Nathan Reynolds' family, We've attended dozens of coronial inquests. We've read hundreds and hundreds of deaths in custody reports of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And it's been an extremely traumatic process. I have relatives in there. You have relatives in there. So it's not just a piece of work. And it's also not just about numbers. Every square in that database represents a human being whose life has lost, been lost and who is mourned and loved by a family somewhere. And that kind of trauma is ricocheting all around Australia in, in every Aboriginal community. But what we wanted to do was tell people the truth about what was going on, how people were being taken into custody and how they were dying. Some people die of self-harm. Some people die of what's referred to as natural causes. 
which of course aren't natural causes when you look closely enough. Someone who dies of a massive asthma attack after the system identifies him several times as being at risk of dying of an asthma attack, that's not a natural cause in our view. We called those things medical incidents, but we were very clear in the database to make sure that people understood what people were dying from and why. So, Philippa, I just want to pick up on a couple of things. You mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement being a a new dynamic, and Lorena's made the observation that discussions have moved into the mainstream. From your perspective, sort of at the coalface and watching these issues, being a really strong advocate in this space, what have you seen in terms of that shift and what has been the impact of Black Lives Matter here? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. I think Black Lives Matter definitely is one of the things, but I also think social media has had a lot to do with it. Like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are all over that. And really, I think the way that that's been used, I think the way that the communities are gathering support for various causes and that the words getting out there in our own words from our own perspective, not by some kind of mainstream media organisation, but from us. And like Lorena was saying, you know, the actual trauma and the pain of it coming from the family has a different impact than it just being reported, you know, on the nightly news. So I think there's been a couple of things that have helped push the awareness about it, but It still obviously hasn't resolved or solved the actual issue itself. But, you know, you have to have awareness, I think, first, and at least that started to happen. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Barron, and my guests tonight are Philippa McDermott and Lorena Allen. In other news this week, a police officer in New South Wales has been charged over an alleged assault on an Aboriginal youth last June. The incident, which involved the officer performing a leg sweep on the teenager at Ward Park in Surrey Hills, was captured on video and subsequently went viral. Lorena, what did you make of the fact that the officer was actually charged in this case? I guess because the matter will now be before the court, we should be careful what we say. But in the case of that young man... I think it happened at such a time when the Black Lives Matter movement here was at such a peak. We were already talking about what had happened to David Dungay and any number of other Aboriginal people who died in custody. And rally organisers were fighting in the Supreme Court to be given permission to rally while these COVID restrictions were on. And the police were quite opposed to the rally at first. So that footage emerging when it did really focused attention on policing in a way that it went viral, that footage, right? So I think the police, there was pressure and then continued to be pressure on the police to investigate that and be seen to be doing something about it. So I think while we can't talk about the circumstances of the case now, the charges are, I think, proof that the Black Lives Matter movement is having some impact. Philippa, what do you think the impact is of mobile phone technology now on police accountability? Well, I think it speaks for itself about the vision that was used of that young lad and what an impact using technology has for us. There are apps now, Copwatch and what have you, and you know people in the legal profession and, and who support 
us and other protesters or people on the street are saying to use that kind of vision because it can count as evidence. So I think it's really appropriate for, you know, especially young people who feel like they're marginalised as it is, that they should know their rights about that they are allowed to film those kind of things as long as they don't get in the way of any of the arrests or whatever's going on. But you can find out, you know, how to use it. And I think it's a really great tool. You make the point, rightly, that such footage can be used as evidence. But do you see when something like that goes viral that it actually changes community perceptions about the issues? It's a truth-telling, isn't it? I mean, you see them there in the vision and it happens. It's their word against ours, really, quite often in these kind of cases. So who knows, you know, hypothetically, someone could have tripped over or la, 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 la. There's always these, you know, different kinds of excuses. So I think that's where it really has the biggest impact. This week, the federal government announced a travel ban on people travelling from India due to the COVID situation there. It announced penalties of fines of up to $66,000 and imprisonment for up to five years for breaches of the rule. Philippa, what did you make of the ban? Well, it's pretty complicated in a lot of ways, but it does seem like it's gone above and beyond a reasonable kind of measure. And I think there are some lawyers that are uh, having a look at a challenge that it might even be unconstitutional. So it's going to be interesting to follow how how it pans out. Lorena, what were your thoughts? I've heard a lot of people say that this is objectively racist and on the face of it, I'd agree with them. I mean, when COVID was ravaging the UK and Italy and Portugal, we didn't do this. So it's easy to see how people would assume this is a racist response because this is Indian people who are you know, suffering in extremists. And this is how we respond. I think it's kind of shameful, really. It may be, as Philippa said, unconstitutional. Uh, It's certainly disturbing that we would refuse re-entry to our own citizens. And that is a worrying precedent that we all should be concerned about, I think. Well, finally tonight, a man fishing on Lake Wellington found himself face to face with a tiger snake while out on his tinny, and it was 11 kilometres back to shore. Such a trip would be the stuff of nightmares for many of us. And it's made me wonder, what's the hairiest situation you found yourself in, Lorena? (laughs) I feel sorry for that snake. I'd be saying, look, mate, you have the boat, I'll swim. (laughs) The hairiest thing... Well, literally, I was driving home one afternoon with the sun in my eyes and a huntsman spider about the size of my fist ran across the windscreen on the inside of my car and I thought I was going to die. I screamed. I took my hands off the wheel. I did everything wrong. I hit the brake. I took my hands off the wheel. I thought, yeah, this is... (sighs) So that took several years off my life and now everyone laughs at me but I carry fly spray in the car. I know. (laughs) I don't know why that's going to save me, but that was my incident, yeah. What about you, Philippa? Well, my incident is with a huntsman spider (laughs) in my car, funny enough. I was driving my daughter to school one morning and I had a skirt on and I was driving a manual car and a huntsman ran up my leg. Oh, my God. Yes, yes, yes. And I... I did do the right thing. I pulled over to the curb and then just kind of, well, I put the handbrake on, jumped out of the car thinking it had, God knows where it had gone. I was screaming and my daughter had no idea what was going on and I was trying to, you know, get rid of it and I found it, thank goodness. But that was pretty scary, especially when you're driving and then also trying to drive a manual because, you know, you've got like one foot on the clutch and, you know, oh, yeah, God. so that was 
<laughs> we still talk about that story today. <laughs> yeah. Well, my guests this evening have been Indigenous Affairs Editor with The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allum, and Chair of the Bangara Dance Theatre, Philippa McDermott. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Two years ago, the Morrison government announced the appointment of the country's first national suicide prevention advisor. The move was in response to the deaths of five Aboriginal girls aged between 12 and 15 in January that year. So how much progress has been made in stemming the rates of self-harm amongst First Nations youth since that time? We'll bring you more on that shortly, but right now some music. This track is by Thelma Plum. It's taken from her 2013 album Rosie and is called Father Said. Sailing past the wind, past the window My father said, now son, don't help me out He's sailing past the wind, past the window My father said, now son, don't help me out And now he's crying, crying out for love and now he's working, working up from above He's sailing past the wind, past the window My father said, now son, don't help me out He's sailing past the wind, past the window My father said, now son, don't help me out That was Thelma Plum with the track Father Said. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Disturbing figures released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics have shown that suicide is the leading cause of death for First Nations children aged between 5 and 17 years old. In 2019, suicide rates for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders were more than double the rate for non-Indigenous Australians. And figures from the Australian Institute for Health and Welfare show that young First Nations women are 60% more likely to be hospitalised for self-harm than their male counterparts. The crisis made national headlines two years ago following the deaths of five Aboriginal girls aged between 12 and 15 in January alone. 
It prompted peak medical and health bodies to pressure Prime Minister Scott Morrison to declare First Nations child suicides a national emergency. In response, the head of the National Mental Health Commission, Christine Morgan, was named the country's National Suicide Prevention Advisor. But the leading community organisation that has been consistently working to bring about change is the National Indigenous Postvention Service, Fiddly. Jacqueline McGowan-Jones is the CEO and she joins me now. Jacqueline, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Larissa. Now, before we get into the issue, I just wanted to find out a little bit more about you. Can you tell us where you grew up? I grew up in Victoria, in Bendigo, on Jarjarung country. And my father was adopted and his heritage was then discovered to be Indigenous as we did lots of searching through Linkup while I was working with the Bringing Them Home Task Force. And my family connections are Warramungu and Arundung. So who were your greatest influences when you were growing up? What shaped your worldview? I think obviously my mum. She was the constant in our life. My dad had a very challenging upbringing and uh, challenging life. But also at that time, Carolyn Briggs was in Bendigo when I was a teenager and she had an immense impact on our family and our lives. So I think, you know, she brought home to me how important it was to look for our family, to be connected to our culture, that the strength that is in culture was terribly important. And that began my journey. And what prompted you to get into this area of work? What's led you down this path? In October 2015, I came home from a work trip and my mother was living with me and I found she'd taken her own life. And I had also been helping to care for my daughter, niece, who had very significant mental health issues and made numerous attempts on her own life. And it just felt to me that I could bring something to the discussion and to the service with lived experience. Unfortunately, three months ago, my daughter, niece, also completed suicide. I'm so sorry. And thank you for sharing that with us. What's the primary focus of the work that you do at Fiddley? Our primary focus is to prevent what we call contagion or echo suicide. Those siblings who lose a sibling to suicide are two to three times more likely to take their own life. And when we consider that our children and young people already have a suicide rate of seven times more than the broader population, it is critical that we do something to prevent those young people taking their own lives when they lose a friend or family member. From what you've seen, from your very personal experience and the work you do, how do cases of suicide and self-harm impact our First Nations communities? The impact is far greater than the broader community. There's a lot of evidence and research out there that says when somebody takes their own life, up to 135 people are directly impacted For Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people where we're living in much greater size of communities and have a broader definition of what is family, that number can be up to 4,000. If you've got a community of three to 4,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people like we do in some of our remote areas, the whole community is affected by suicide. So that number of 135 can be 100 times more for our people. 
What does the research show in terms of the factors that contribute to the disparity in the number of cases between First Nations children and the broader community? There's been a lot of research done, but Michael Chandler has done a huge amount of work in Canada. And that work shows that in those bands or differing cultural groups, where there's cultural continuity and connection, there's almost no suicide. In Australia, the research done predominantly by people like Pat Dudgeon and Uncle Tom Kalmer also shows that the strengthening of culture and connectedness reduces the likelihood of suicide. However, in Australia, we also have transgenerational trauma and contemporary disadvantage and discrimination that continues to cause mental health problems for our families and communities. We have also discovered, of course, that child sexual abuse can be a factor in suicide. But I am concerned when people suggest that the only reason our children and young people are taking their own lives is because they were abused. We know that discrimination, disconnection from culture, country, family and community through stolen generations, through child protection activities that don't try hard enough to place our children with kinship carers and those sorts of things contribute greatly to the deaths in our children and young people from suicide. I just want to pick up on something really important that you've said there. What role does culture play in the healing process for families impacted by suicide or self-harm? A connection to culture is critical. The social and emotional wellbeing framework developed by Pat Dudge and Graham G and others shows all of those areas that are important to us feeling safe and strong in self. And that includes being able to understand where you're from, where you fit into your community, who you are, what is your cultural connection. People who are disconnected from their culture and from family and community and country have a displaced feeling that leads to worsening mental health outcomes for them. So it is critically important that our children and young people are able to connect to their culture, who they are, where they're from, what is their dreaming, what are their stories, how do they connect, what is their future in their community, so that they feel they have a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging and a sense of family and community. Italy is the country's only First Nations provider in the area of postvention services. From your perspective, what is the need for more community-controlled support in the sector? Look, I think it's critical that we do something about this. There is a significant amount of funding goes into mainstream services, and don't get me wrong, some of those services do good work with our families and communities. However, we know that with suicide, the bereavement experience is far more complex. People experience not only the shock and the anger and the grief at the loss, but they experience guilt and shame and they go through the what-if process. In funding only one Indigenous provider or only one service, when the rates of suicide are so significantly greater... We are stretching the resources and we're not able to always be exactly where we need to be at any given time. We know that it's critical for our families and communities to be able to have choice about the services they choose and we know that they need to have access to culturally appropriate and culturally responsive services. 
Siddeley's team is all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff. We have a 24-7 number for people to refer themselves or for people to refer families to us. And that is always answered by an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person. That can be the first step to connecting to somebody because they know that we know and have experience similar to them and they feel that immediate sense of connection, which is critical if you're going to engage with a service provider. In 2019, following the suicide deaths of five Aboriginal girls in the space of a month, the federal government named the country's first national suicide prevention advisor. From your perspective, being on the ground at the coalface, how far have we come in addressing the rates of self-harm in our communities since that announcement? I won't pretend to be an expert on self-harm and I think there's a lot more that needs to be done in that prevention space in working with people with self-harm. And I've talked about my daughter, Ness, who took her own life and she self-harmed and attempted suicide from about the age of nine years of age. I think it's critical that more work is done in the prevention space. We shouldn't need a post-vention service if we were doing prevention well enough. The numbers don't appear to me to be decreasing in our young people's suicides. In 2020, our service recorded 46 suicides in the 25 and under age group. This year so far, we already have 27 in the 25 and under age group and we're only four months into the year. So there needs to be a greater focus on prevention and that includes self-harm and attempts The new Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention Strategy is due soon and Gaia Dewey has been leading that work and I think it's critical that we identify significant funding to address this issue. Mainstream services cannot do this. The Aboriginal-controlled and led services understand their communities, they have connections in community, they understand the context of our children and young people's lives in community and they're able, therefore, to work more closely with those impacted by what's going on. Jacqueline, one of the things that we like to explore on when we're looking at issues like this is obviously we look at these tough issues and you've given us a very insightful account of the broader impacts of suicide on our communities and the trauma, but we also like to celebrate the resilience of Aboriginal communities and particularly our Aboriginal people who are at the front line doing the hard work. And I was wondering if you could share with us how you manage your own wellbeing in the face of such challenging work and often a very traumatic workload. So I think I have to pay absolute homage to my my team's out on the ground. They are the people who are working with our families and communities every day. We make sure that we've got strong cultural supervision. We also have strong social and emotional wellbeing supervision and supports for our teams. We make sure we talk about what's happening for us individually and collectively. Our people on the ground in the main also have lived experience and for them this is a calling rather than a job. It is about how they use their own experience to support others. But we know that supporting our teams is ever so important. And for example, in a couple of weeks time, we've got another full week of training and support for our teams. We had 
a full week a few weeks back as well. That training is not just training on how we do our work in better ways, but it is also around how do we care for self and how do we care for others without impinging upon our own well-being and how we manage that context of the work we do. So we also have a couple of Aboriginal psychologists who work with our teams. They work with them as a group and they also work with them individually if those individuals feel they need more intensive support. Jacqueline, thank you so much for taking time with us tonight to really give us some important insights into this issue. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing in this space. And thank you so much, Larissa, for the opportunity to share our story of our service. Many of our people may not know we're here and we're really keen that they do become aware and do know we're here to help. Well, I hope we can have you back on the show again to keep following the important work you're doing. Thanks, Larissa. Jacqueline McGowan-Jones is the CEO of the National Indigenous Postvention Service, Fiddly. And if you or anyone you know is experiencing difficulty, you can contact Fiddly on 1800 805 801. Lifeline on 13 11 14, Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or Black Rainbow via their homepage blackrainbow.org.au. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. Well, as you've just heard, keeping First Nations kids with their families and connecting to communities are major factors in maintaining their overall health and well-being. Culturally appropriate early childhood education and care are at the heart of a new strategy currently being developed by the sector. Earlier this year, the peak community-controlled organisation SNAKE, National Voice for Our Children, announced a new partnership with the National Indigenous Australians Agency. The new strategy will be designed to refocus policy to enable greater collaboration and coordination of services across government, the early childhood sector, families and children. Auntie Muriel Bamblett is the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency, or VACA, as well as Chair of SNAKE, National Voice for Our Children, and she joins me now. Auntie Muriel, welcome back to Speaking Out. Yeah, Larissa, thanks for having me back. Now, it has been a long time since we've had you on the show. How have you been? Oh, pretty busy. We've still got the work of the treaty happening. We've got the Truth and Justice Commission in Victoria. And now you know that we take on guardianship. We're now in the process of considering taking on investigations so that we can get better outcomes for Aboriginal children. So I think, yep. It's fairly busy in Victoria at the moment. <laughs> Make me feel like an underachiever and I get tired just listening <laughs> to what you're doing. But it's so good to have you back on the program. A lot's yeah. been happening for the childcare sector since we last spoke, as you've mentioned. But before we get into that, we've just heard about the alarming figures from the ABS around First Nations youth suicide rates. As a peak childcare provider and from your work in the sector, what does the disproportionately high numbers in our communities tell you? 
Look, I think that we know that young people, we need to do a lot more work. I mean, children are born into complex family environments. Obviously, poverty is a big disadvantage, is a big issue for our communities. And children born with parents with, you know, there's drug and alcohol, mental health, family violence in their home, actually take those issues on themselves. And I think that we need to recognise the significance of the amount of abuse that children, the racism they have to deal with on top of all the issues at home. So I think that it's not a simple issue, but I think we don't know the warning signs. You know, I heard last night of a young person that committed suicide and there were no warning signs. And so this is something that is tragic. It absolutely tears at the heart of our communities when you lose a young person and I know that you know there are many community members now that are struggling and it seems to be that you take your eye off young people and think that all your young people are doing well and I think that we know check for your kids make sure they're fine I think that it's a really big issue I know that a lot of the issues that we see relate to young people as I said born in houses where they have complex needs where they don't have access to good counselling where they don't have access to good supports. I think mainstream has done a lot to understand the developing brain and what's happening with young people and to be able to deal with their trauma. But as I said, I think most of the issues seem to appear to come from school and from peers and racism or bullying in the schools. And I think that has to be a starting ground for us. How do we actually make sure that children are doing well in the school, emotionally as well as physically well in the school environment? Reflecting on your extensive experience in child protection, how does a connection to culture and community assist the mental development of First Nations children? Look, obviously a lot of our work is around returning children to country, being able to make sure they've got a cultural support plan, making sure that they've got genealogy, Aboriginality. Our role really is to, for many Aboriginal children that have got no connection, is really about giving them a sense of who they are because, you know, it's a well-known fact. Many of our carers are non-Aboriginal people and children growing up in an environment where they can't see their culture, where they don't live with their Aboriginal culture every day, acculturate into a different society and a different way of living. And then when they get to adolescence, they struggle with the fact that they know they're Aboriginal but then can't connect in any way. Because, you know, Larissa, the first thing you ask me, you know, normally is, who's your mob, Muriel? Where are you from? And I'll proudly say, yorta yorta, shaja rung, and rattle off all my peoples and who I'm related to, and people will connect us up like this. But imagine for a young person what it's like to be able to not know who you are, where you come from, and to not be able to be proud of that heritage and where you come from. And I think that's really critical. We know that in juvenile justice and even our Koori Youth Council say that the biggest thing that young people say is that we don't know anything about who we are and where we come from. And I think in many ways we forget to talk to our children about who they are and their culture where we think that just because we're Aboriginal, they're going to be able to learn their stories, know who they are, know the history of their people in this country. 
And I think, you know, for me being involved in the Truth and Justice Commission in Victoria, it really, you know, resonates that we've got to do more ourselves. We can't say we're Aboriginal without taking on responsibility and obligations for pursuing all of our nations, all of our Aboriginal people, keeping our stories, our traditions, our ceremonies alive. I think that we just blissfully go on you know, throughout our life, living and being an Aboriginal. But we have to take greater responsibility for the revival and, you know, obviously for our people to still exist in this country. Otherwise, our footprint will be gone. Given all of this, why is the new strategy that you're working on so important and how does it differ from past approaches? Well, I think that we know that from our point of view, when children get a good early year start, and I think it's critical to understand, you know, like I went to my doctor and my doctor said to me, the greatest gift your mother gave you was really good antenatal. She really did all the things. And my mum was a stay-at-home mum, so I got really good early years, like really good parenting, and and my mum didn't have issues. She didn't drink, she didn't smoke. And she used to make me go to school every day. She had a, a view that education was important. And I think we know that, you know, when children have really good early years, good maternal and child health, good early years as far as access to good childcare services, and particularly Aboriginal ones, we know that our Aboriginal services are more than just an education base. They actually provide parenting support. They actually see as well for us children that have got issues as far as what's happening at home and we're able to address it early enough. And so I think our early years services are critical to our Aboriginal communities. So if you go to every remote community in, in the Northern Territory, they have an early years centre and you can see they run play groups, they work with young mums, they work with young dads, they actually provide nutrition programs and all sorts of supports to family as well as providing early year services to young children. And so when children go to early year services, we can actually pick up whether they've got developmental issues, whether there are health issues, you know, hearing issues, teeth problems, all those things. That's a holistic early year service which many of our Aboriginal communities deliver. And so Snake's view is is that really we want all Aboriginal children to have the best start in life, to be able to make sure that they're school ready when they get to school, that they're prepared for and understand the school environment, understand peers, understand how to be able to negotiate the school system. And so, you know, like my children went to Yapra, which is a multifunctional Aboriginal children's service. And my children were, when they went to school, and my son went to pick my granddaughter up one day at school, and my, my son saw him playing with a number of kids in the school and he said oh you're playing with your friends and she turned around and said they're not my friends they're my cousins we weren't related to all those children but it wasn't a lovely sense of connection knowing who you are and she had a really strong Aboriginal base and continues to have that today. With the strategy what's involved in developing it and where is that process currently at? Well, we've been working with the Commonwealth, so it's got a number of elements. Obviously, we do want to look at capacity building the current sector, and so it is about a workforce. And so many years ago, governments invested in health workforce and they invested in early years workforce. 
but it seems to be sporadic. You know, you, you get it at a period of time and then we don't hear anything about it. And so it is about supporting in each state and territory bodies to take on the role of advocating and supporting children. And I need to be really clear, some states do early years really well. I lived in Queensland for a period of time and Gundala Preschool, amazing place. I've got triplets and so they used to pick up the triplets every morning. I was so keen to see that little bus drive up every morning and pick up my kids. But how important was picking my kids up because I didn't have a car, I didn't have a licence, so I wouldn't have been able to get them to kinder and like my kids really have done so well just by being through an Aboriginal kindy they were able to develop friendships that they still have today so how important is that we are actually looking at mapping the whole of Australia with and understanding where our early year services are we're also obviously looking at mainstream and their role and their responsibility so the Commonwealth has made a commitment to look at how do we actually get the best results and it is aimed at children and where they live so we're looking at where our Aboriginal populations are where access is an issue and how do we address some of those really big issues. You mentioned earlier that in terms of your work, one of the changes that's going to come in is that there's now going to be an ability to investigate. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that and why that's so fundamental and critical and why you think that's going to lead to changes. Well, obviously, in Victoria, we've taken on Aboriginal guardianship. And I think initially there was a lot of concern from the community. And I think there still is There's quite a lot of concern about why do Aboriginal organisations want to be involved in child protection? That's about removing children. Our experience is exactly the opposite since we've taken on guardianship and I'm the guardian at the moment of 80 children and so what we've seen is the department they measure success with the numbers of children that go home and so reunification is really critical and children going home and particularly children that have been on long-term orders we do a high five when one child goes on once they've been on a long-term order and what we're seeing is the reunification rates for Aboriginal organisations is significantly higher than what the government and mainstream so what we've seen is the department has a 12% rate of reunification of Aboriginal children, what we're getting is a 28% rate of children going home to family and to community. So to me, that says that if we keep going at this rate, we will have the numbers of children that are in the care system. And that's critical because Aboriginal peoples hang in there. They know how to get the best outcomes. They know referral pathways. We're supporting grandparents through brokerage, through targeted care package, through helping them put extra bedrooms, get bigger houses, all those sorts of things that you need to do to be able to take on the care of your children or to keep your children with your grandparents in their communities. So all those things are critical aspects of our work. But moving to investigations is new for us and we just think that the department is too quick to remove and too slow to refer families to supports and I believe if we have the capacity to investigate I believe a lot more families will get help earlier and we will be able to identify and work with all the other institutions that are out there so we can work with the child care centres, we can work with the police, we can work where we know children are notified 
where organisations or systems seek our kids at risk coming to their services. So we know that at schools, we know teachers are the biggest notifiers of children at risk, and they see children who come to school without lunch. They see children that come to school with sores, with different things, children that will tell them that things are happening in their home. So they notify. We want to be able to get those notifications and go with with mum and dad and find out what's going on. There's different ways of doing. We've been working with Aboriginal Housing Victoria during COVID. You know, we knew that a lot of our families couldn't get out of the houses and out of the homes. And so what Aboriginal Housing did is actually got a family support worker and their role was to do a wellbeing check on all the families. And we offered referral pathways to our organisation to, you know, make sure that families were linked into appropriate supports, whether it be food supports, whether it be emergency relief, whether it be access to our parenting programs, drug and alcohol, mental health, homelessness, all those supports. Within the first week, our numbers skyrocketed. People don't realise that in public housing, many of our families are struggling and we don't offer support to them. We just provide public housing, we give them a house, but we don't actually support them to live in the house. And so I think we often need to think innovatively and differently about how do we actually service our people and how do we look after people that are vulnerable. There are many opportunities and I think COVID showed us that digital poverty was the biggest issue that we were dealing with and how do we get to such a terrible situation with so many children not having a computer or even access to the internet in the home. How do you do your homework, Larissa? We were really, really gobsmacked to see how many parents themselves were illiterate, didn't know how to turn on a computer. How do you support your child to do home learning when you can't read and write yourself? You don't know how to use a computer. So those sorts of things are the things that I believe that the Aboriginal community controlled organisations deal with and people don't often see it. It's so interesting to hear you give us those case studies because it really emphasises a theme that comes up in a lot of our conversations, which is the critical role that our community-controlled organisations play and how there's so much better place to deal with issues at the coalface. Given, as you mentioned, the challenges of the current environment and social restrictions regularly placed on states and communities due to COVID-19 and our cultural need to engage with our communities, how have you maintained your strength and what's kept you motivated through this last period? (laughs) I think, um, you know, like I'm so lucky I've got a really good team. I mean, we did take a greater focus on wellbeing of all of our staff at Backer and I got so many well-being packs at home here and like even 3KD dropped off a well-being pack to me. The things that we did during COVID, I would hope that we continue to do. We dropped food off to elders, we dropped well-being packs off to elders, we still delivered on our essential services, we still had to make sure that we had children in sight, we still had to make sure that carers were supported. We were doing well-being checks and dropping off parcels of food, we were supporting our families. I think that everybody thinks it was a health crisis in the Aboriginal community, we didn't see it as just a health crisis because we knew that we were the most at risk 
because of our compromised immune systems, but we also knew because the way our Aboriginal families congregate and there was no way we were going to be able to address because we had overcrowded housing. And so we all knew that we had to look after the well-being of our communities. But it was our work with elders, I think, that we really excelled. We had a theme at FACA where no one gets left behind. There was a Blackfella COVID helpline set up or Facebook page set up and we saw young people dropping off parcels and food and we saw other Aboriginal people volunteering to pick elders up and take them shopping. We saw incidences of people donating all sorts of things and taking them to, in the end, a warehouse that we were able to lease because we were getting so many donations. And these were done by young people in our community. And so, to me, I know that we live with crisis as Aboriginal people every day, but I think it demonstrated that we have got a really human caring nature within our communities. And when something like that happened, I thought it brought out the best in us. I think it absolutely showed the level of caring that we have and that many of us have lost. We got so involved with everything else. And I think COVID brought us back to who we are, back to being community, about caring, about nurturing, about sharing, about understanding. But I think like everybody else, we really did struggle with funerals, you know, like losing loved ones. And I think the trauma of loss and not being able to properly say goodbye, I think is still something that we're challenged with here in Victoria. And I know that, you know, many are still struggling with the significant mental health issues after COVID. And so, you know, the government's working on how do we actually do things to be able to help people get over lockdown. Arnie Muriel, it's always a pleasure to speak with you and hear the wisdom you have to share. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for taking the time to speak with us tonight. No, thank you for having me. Always love having you on the show. Arnie Muriel Bamblett is the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency, or VACA, and the chair of SNAKE, National Voice for Our Children. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we take a look at the role that modern literature is playing with the revitalisation of First Nations languages and culture. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.